You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. So even before our technical difficulties, I might have lost some of you already just by mentioning social justice. Um, you might think that in bringing up this topic, Galveston Bible Church doesn't care about minorities or the poor or the disadvantaged. Or worse, that we will use the Bible to justify disregarding the plight of the disadvantaged or the underprivileged. That's not the case. And I urge you to stay with me. Don't tune me out yet because this is a very important and pressing issue. An issue that has affected the very message of the gospel in our churches in the past. And it will continue to do so in the future. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come to you and your word and your Holy Spirit will uh, show us what is true from your word. We pray that you would use uh, the Bible today in our lives and hearts, that we would have open hearts and minds to your truth, and that we, we would be thankful to you for the gospel and glorify your name because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. What is social justice? Well, social justice means anything the person using the term wants it to mean. The Oxford English Dictionary definition is justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within society. To some, it means equal outcomes. To some, it means equal opportunities. To some it means the golden rule. To some it means disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking and defunding the police. So don't assume you know what a person means when they use the term social justice. There's much about social justice that brings it into the political arena. So we should touch on how to think about political viewpoints for Christians generally. To do that, we'll need to go to Romans chapter 14. In this part of his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul gives instructions on how to deal with issues on which sincere Bible-believing Christians can disagree. This is often referred to as Christian liberty. So tell me, what is your viewpoint on issues like reparations for descendants of former slaves, taxes and social programs that redistribute wealth, affirmative action, immigration, big versus small government? What's your viewpoint on gun laws? According to the scripture, these are not issues to divide over as Christians. You don't believe me? Turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verse 4, and we'll start there. Romans 14, 4. 
Paul's here addressing two issues that were hot topics in the early church. Whether to celebrate Jewish holidays or not after you become a Christian. And whether to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Because there were Christians on both sides of these issues. Some people said, no, once we're Christians, we don't need to celebrate any Jewish holidays. Others said, no, we should continue. Some people said that meat offered to idols was disrespectful to God and you shouldn't eat it. And other people said, that meat's the same. The idols are nothing. So we can eat it if we want to. So Paul starts here in verse 4 and says, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live... We live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For this cause, to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not, or despise thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We should be fully convinced on our own mind, but we should not divide over our opinions, whether it's on political issues or religious issues. If it's our opinions, we should not divide over those. However, the caveat here is that if you find yourself supporting a political position that recognizes a universal human right that the Bible calls a sin, that's no longer Christian liberty. So I'm thinking of abortion. I'm thinking of homosexuality. The Bible describes those as sins against God. And if you're espousing, if you are uh, embracing a political position that calls those universal human rights, then that's not a matter of Christian liberty. So keep that in mind. Is social justice a gospel issue? You might have heard people say it's a gospel issue. X is a gospel issue, whatever it is. Right now we're talking about social justice. The term gospel issue itself is a big red flag. Because like the term social justice, the term gospel issue can mean anything the person wants it to mean. It could mean if you're a Christian, you will show it in how you care for other people. It could mean... Unless you agree with my view of social justice, you're being unchristian. So when someone says that X 
in this case social justice, is a gospel issue, it really indicates that the person may have either an unclear understanding or a corrupted definition of what the gospel really is. And the gospel has been corrupted throughout history by gospel issues. So I want to give two examples, one from my experience and one from the scripture. Um, about 20 years ago now, I was a non-traditional student in a Mennonite liberal arts college. I was working as a police officer and majoring in restorative community justice. During a small group discussion, one young man happened to mention the gospel. I knew he was uh, a sincere Mennonite uh, young man. So I asked him, what is the gospel? Well, he had a hard time, but he finally said, I was taught that the gospel has social connotations. So I followed up with another question. Okay, if that's the connotation, what is the denotation? Because connotation is like the implications of the gospel. Denotation is what is the gospel? What's the definition of it? And he didn't know. He couldn't answer that. So I just left him with the question at that point. But this was a young man who'd been raised in the Mennonite church. He was sincere. I know he celebrated Ash Wednesday because he came to class with ash on his forehead. Um, yet he honestly didn't know the gospel. Now, I know there are many different Mennonite groups who still do hold the true gospel. But this man didn't have a clue. So how did this happen? The Mennonites are descendants of the Anabaptists who were tortured and killed by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers during the Reformation because of their stand on Scripture as the only authority for faith and practice. But this man, having grown up in his Mennonite church, honestly did not know the gospel. Well, this is what happened. We need a short history lesson. The time is around 1900. And the Industrial Revolution is in high gear. People have been flocking to the cities for work, but they're living in squalid, terrible conditions. And they're working long hours for starvation wages in dark, dangerous factories. And in response to this problem, the social gospel was born. Now this is a quote from Encyclopedia Britannica. Social gospel. Religious social reform movement prominent in the United States from about 1870 to 1920. Advocates of the movement interpreted the kingdom of God as requiring social as well as individual salvation and sought the betterment of industrialized society through application of the biblical principles of charity and justice. The social gospel was especially promulgated among liberal Protestant ministers, including Washington Gladden and Lyman Abbott, and was shaped by the persuasive works of Charles Monroe Sheldon in his steps, What Would Jesus Do, 1896, and Walter Rauschenbusch, Christianity and the Social Crisis, 1907. Labor reforms, including the abolition of child labor, a shorter work week, a living wage, and factory regulation, constituted the social gospel's most prominent concerns. During the 1930s, many of these ideals were realized through the rise of organized labor and the legislation of the New Deal by U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt. 
end quote. So we see that in response to these social problems, the social gospel movement was born. And you notice they didn't say that you didn't need individual salvation. What they said was the kingdom of God requires social as well as individual salvation. So they added this to the gospel. So why was it that all this young man knew about the gospel was it had social connotations? Because 80 years before he was born, his church added something to the gospel. And it wasn't something bad. I think we would all agree with the reforms that the social gospel movement wanted. But when you add good works to the good news, it becomes a different gospel. The good news is what God did, not something that we do. So let's look at an example from Scripture now. And this is documented in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So the story of the Galatian church is Paul came to the area. They became Christians. They started a church. They were going great. And then along came a possibly well-meaning Jewish group of Christians and said, we're so glad you've accepted our Messiah. Now you need to keep our laws to go with it. Well, this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which is preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. So why does Paul make such a big deal out of this? Why is this so dangerous to add something to the gospel? They didn't take anything away. They still believed in Jesus, but they added something. Why is it so dangerous? Well, I use the illustration of carbon monoxide poisoning, and I've used this before. You may have heard it. And you're asking me right now, what in the world does that have to do with the gospel? Well, our red blood cells have 240 times more attraction for carbon monoxide than for oxygen. So if this room was filled with plenty of oxygen for everyone to breathe, and then we introduced some carbon monoxide, even if it was the oxygen was 100 or 200 times more, we could all die of carbon monoxide poisoning because our blood likes it better. And it's the same way with our sinful nature. We like works. We like the idea that we can do something to appease God. Our sinful hearts are more attracted to good works that we can do rather than to helpless trust in the gospel. Look at the religions of the world. The Hindu or Buddhist believes in karma, which means good works. The Muslim tries to satisfy Allah by his deeds. And the only certain way he can do that is by dying in jihad. 
The Roman Catholic Church has sacraments, which are works that are channels of the grace of God. Our sinful hearts are, are more attracted to good works that we can do to appease God and earn his favor than to helpless trust in the gospel. Consequently, if you introduce something into the gospel that has to do with works, it will in time naturally displace the true gospel just like carbon monoxide displaces oxygen in your lungs and you die. And our churches will be poisoned in the same way as these mainline churches, like this young man's Mennonite church, were poisoned by the social gospel over a hundred years ago. And the same way the Galatian church was poisoned by the Jewish law over 2,000 years ago. So you might be saying, I don't know if this is that big a problem. Uh, I haven't really heard of it. It doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. Well, I have a few quotes from Christian leaders. The first one is Paul Tripp from his blog. The article is titled, My Confession Toward a More Balanced Gospel. Quote, for all of my passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been accurate and faithful to the best of my ability, the gospel that I have held so dear has been, in reality, a truncated and incomplete gospel. Unquote. And then under the heading, further down, of the gospel of justice, quote, by God's grace, I have become deeply persuaded that we cannot celebrate the gospel of God's grace without being a committed ambassador of the gospel of his justice as well, unquote. From Dr. Russell Moore, who is president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, he was asked about the statement on social justice and the gospel, which, by the way, this church has endorsed. While appearing on the Holy Post podcast, host Sky Jathani inquired whether rhetoric that seems to differentiate and bifurcate the ideas of social justice and the gospel is helpful. In other words, does it help to make a distinction between social justice and the gospel? And this is Dr. Russell Moore's answer. Quote, no, because the Bible doesn't put those two things in separate categories, unquote. From David Platt, a Twitter post, quote, do we realize that obedience to the Great Commission has massive implications for social transformation, unquote. Now, he's not wrong, but what does that remind you of? That reminds me of the Mennonite man's answer to my question. The, social, the, the gospel has social connotations. And certainly the gospel will change the world, but the Great Commission, our commission, is to preach the gospel, not to preach social transformation. Then the last quote here is a little bit longer. From Professor Jarvis Williams, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. This is from his class notes that he provided for the class. The class is the intersection of race, gospel, and racial reconciliation in Paul's theology. This is from the lecture on the complexity of soteriology in Paul's theology. Now, soteriology is a fancy word for teaching about salvation. So he's talking about salvation here. And in the introduction, he says this, quote, In my two lectures today, I want to accomplish three things. 
First, I will argue that the category of race should not be narrowly defined to refer to groups of people with so-called biological distinctions, e.g. physical features, skin color, hair, etc., but should be broadly defined to include any kind of other male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, etc. Second, I want to argue that the category of gospel should not, capital N-O-T, be narrowly defined as entry language, i.e. justification by faith, but should be broadly defined to include maintenance language, i.e. walking in the spirit. Third, I want to argue that soteriology, again, salvation, should not be narrowly defined as deliverance from God's wrath, but should be broadly defined to include obedience. These three arguments will support my thesis that racial reconciliation is a gospel issue because it is a soteriological or salvation issue in Paul's theology. So what is Professor Williams saying here? He's saying, one, he redefines race in order to say that Paul teaches racial reconciliation. Two, he redefines the gospel as not only what God did, but also what we do. Three, he redefines the doctrine of salvation to include what we do, obedience. And then on further down in his uh, notes here under... Number 14, he says this, quote, According to Paul, racial reconciliation is not, capital N-O-T, an implication of the gospel, and certainly not a social issue instead of a gospel issue, but it is a gospel issue, all caps, 45 exclamation points, unquote. So our churches are in immediate danger of being poisoned by the carbon monoxide of social justice, adding to the gospel something that we do. And I want to extend that illustration just a little bit further. If you are in a room that has carbon monoxide and you're awake and you notice the symptoms, you can get out the fresh air. But if you're asleep, you may very well die in that room because you won't notice the symptoms. In our churches, if we're awake and we realize what's happening, then we can do something about it. But if we're asleep, not paying attention to what's going on, we could very well lose the gospel like churches have in the past. So am I saying that Justice does not matter to God, or that it shouldn't matter to us? No, I'm not saying that. What is biblical justice? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. In other words, he doesn't show favoritism to anyone, and he doesn't take bribes. He doth execute the judgment or justice of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. 
And then in Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, from the law, this is what it says. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger, nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will be widows, and your children will be fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him an usurer or a money lender. Neither shalt thou lay upon him usury or interest. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherewith shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, a familiar verse. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And James has a lot to say about this topic. Turn with me to James chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. James 2, 1 through 9. James is talking to his Christian brothers here, and he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there coming also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and saith unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme the worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. Biblical justice is impartiality to the privileged and the underprivileged. And as Bible-believing Christians, we know this is in the Bible, right? Not, I'm not telling you something new. This is not the first time you've heard this. The problem is in the application. Like the lawyer who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well, in the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision, blacks are not persons under the law. And some people who claim to be Christians were okay with that. 
in the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. Unborn children are not persons. And some people who claim to be Christians are okay with that. In Old Testament Israel, often to the Jews, non-Jews are not persons, in spite of what God we just read from the law. In Nazi Germany, Jews are not persons, and some who claimed to be Christians were okay with that. So we have ways of reinterpreting God's instruction. That does not change the value that God places on the poor and underprivileged. Justice is of central importance to God, and it should be to us. What is the gospel? We're supposed to be defending the purity of the gospel. What is it? Well, the gospel is divine justice. The gospel is divine justice. The gospel shows that no one places a higher value on justice than God. For God so loved the world that he overlooked our sins. Oh, I don't think that's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son to be a sacrifice to satisfy justice. Justice demands that lawbreakers be punished and a penalty be paid. God himself took our punishment and paid the penalty for our sins in the person of his son when he poured out his wrath on Jesus the Messiah. So what is the gospel? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is very clear about what the gospel is, very concise. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which ye also have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What is the gospel? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, in verse 1, says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, referring to the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him like grapes. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There's nothing in the gospel that we do. Only what God did. In Romans, Paul defines the gospel. He defines our need for the gospel, and he talks about our necessary response to the gospel. In Romans 3, he says, As it is written, none, there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 5, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. So in conclusion, we have liberty as Christians to hold differing political views as long as those views do not call a sin a basic human right. Social justice, regardless of how you define it, is in a position to be the latest corruption of the gospel, be, being promoted as a gospel issue. It adds human works to what God alone has done. Biblical justice is impartiality to the privileged and the underprivileged. The gospel is the ultimate example of justice. And finally, I would like to ask you this. God poured out his wrath on his own son in order to see justice done. What will he do to you and to me if we reject that sacrifice? I urge you to repent and trust the sacrifice of Jesus and give your life to him. And Christians, we do need to know the gospel. We need to identify corruptions to the gospel. But all of that is so we can spread the gospel and make disciples. If that is not a priority in our lives, then we need to repent and ask God to give us 
his heart for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you will be glorified throughout eternity for the gospel, your plan to bring us to yourself, even though we were undeserving, through your own sacrifice. We pray, Lord, you would help us to constantly realize that there is nothing we can do to merit your grace, your favor, your love, but that you poured it out upon us because that's your nature. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom in our lives, give us a heart to share the gospel, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Lord is a classic. It's the greatest uh, visual representation of how God did for us and how He sacrificed the gospel uh, in symbolic form. So we're going to go to the table in a moment. Uh, what we'd like to do is we'd like to take some time to just confess our sins. Uh, we say this all the time. If you're a Christian, your sins will never separate you from God. Uh, they have been forgiven past, present, and future, but they hinder us. Um, and we have a lot of different sins. We have sins uh, where maybe we are believing stuff that is alive. And we need to confess that maybe we've been uh, negligent in our contending for the faith. And we uh, maybe kept our mouth shut and we should have uh, proclaimed uh, or corrected someone's thinking when they were saying something that was incorrect about the gospel. There's a lot of things in that, uh, a lot of ways that we sin during uh, any given uh, day or week. And so just take a moment right now before we come to the table uh, to just confess those uh, sins uh, in the silence of the church, uh, and then we'll proceed. gospel is the good news. That's what the word actually means. The good news is the proclamation. And the proclamation is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, the gospel is the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous us. Uh, the gospel is believing that uh, as Alan it's not anything that we can do. As you confess your sins, it's not God, it's not like I need you to beat yourself up for another couple of days or another couple of hours. No, nope. Jesus, as we say all the time, is going to beat up for you, so to speak. Uh, he took our sin upon himself. Uh, and then he came and proclaimed that good news to us. And so that's what we were to proclaim. Uh, that is what this table represents. It represents Jesus' body being given for us. It's Jesus' blood being poured out for us. Uh, it was us who should have been on the cross. It was us who should have been experiencing the wrath of God. Uh, but Jesus willingly came. And what he did is, uh, this represents the death of Jesus, 
but he didn't just die for us, he also lived for us. You and I are required to live a perfect life, and none of us can do that. Jesus came down to earth to live that perfect life. He always, always told the truth. He was always selfless. Uh, he never lied. He never lusted. He, uh, everything that we are, he was not. And everything that we were to be, he was. And he did that for us. And then he went to the cross, and he was punished for every lie that he ever told every lustful thought that you and I ever had, everything. He was punished for that. And he cried out those horrible words, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And the answer was so that you and I would not be forsaken. Amen. That is the good news, people. Jesus died for our sins. And that's what this table represents. So let me just uh, pray. Uh, this is the let me just say this, this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the table of Dallas and Bible Church. The reason I say that is you do not have to be a member of this church to partake of this meal. You have to be a member of the church, okay? That's the church that Jesus purchased with his blood, the universal church from every tribe and nation um, around the world. You've heard me say this before, I love it. On any given Sunday, there are hundreds, thousands of churches that are partaking in communion and we're communing with them. It's an awesome thought. Believers in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, in Europe, we're all communing with each other and with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a vertical and horizontal communion that's going on that binds us together. Uh, and so if you're here today and you're not giving your life to Jesus, you're not sure what that means, maybe I've done it, I don't know. We're asking that you don't partake of this. We don't want you to proclaim something that your outward actions just not true in your heart. At the same time, if you're like, I'm really intrigued, what does this mean? Please don't leave this place without talking to me or Alan or someone else that can share the good news with you. So let me take these elements. Just nothing special about them. Um, but what we do is we pray and we set them apart. Uh, and we pray that God would nourish us spiritually speaking, find us together in unity. Um, as we partake together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, praise you for who you are. We thank you uh, that even though we developed into you, you still put into motion a plan uh, to, to send your son uh, to live the life that we could not live and then to be punished for everything wrong that we ever did. Everything wrong that we ever did, past, present, and future. And so we thank you, son. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for uh, giving up the glories of heaven, uh, coming down, being a man, suffering hunger, want, uh, suffering uh, rejection, suffering uh, crucifixion. We thank you for doing that, and we thank you that you were raised up again, that you overcame death, and because you went in one end of the grave and came out the other, so we who are in you will go in one end of the grave and come out. Death has no hold on us whatsoever. And we thank you for that. I pray that you would nourish us spiritually as we eat and drink. And I pray that you bind us together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, in the night of which you have betrayed, you took bread and that reaped and thanks, you broke it.
And he said, this is my body, which is given for you to do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also after they had eaten, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we will continue to do this, and we want for the day that we will no longer do this. Because that will mean that we will be in the presence of Jesus. We will be eating and drinking with him uh, in the kingdom. But until then, uh, we cry out of our hearts, even so come, Lord Jesus. It is our practice here at Galveston Bible Church to come forward to receive the elements. Um, just for safety purposes, we're asking you to keep a safe distance between you and the person in front of you. And if at all possible, you send out one representative from your group or your family. Uh, to give the elements for the others. And so at this time, I'm going to ask you to come forward to receive the Lord's Supper.
Thank you for just everything that you've done for us. And we just pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and not to be distracted by the things of this world which are passing away. We thank you for the gospel, and we pray that you would use it to save people in this community and beyond. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just as we close, a couple of announcements. Um, as I said, we are starting this uh, sermon series today. Uh, we're going to have a follow-up uh, on every Sunday evening. Uh, so tonight, if you had some questions uh, and you didn't fill out a card, you can fill out one of those 3 by 5 cards, put it in the um, uh, box back there, uh, and we'll address those tonight uh, as we meet together and also pray. Uh, one of the reasons I forgot to mention this, one of the reasons that we're doing this, Alan kind of mentioned it, uh, is because there's a lot of confusion around the issues that we're going to be talking about, and also the, the church, uh, a lot of churches are compromising on these issues. And so we want to make sure that what we do here is biblical, whether it is hard, whether we lose people or not, 
Um, we're not here to grow a big church if it means that we're going to compromise the truth of the gospel. And we feel like a lot of churches are doing that. And so this is, we're not trying to trigger anyone and just say in your face or anything like that. We just really want to make sure, are we being biblical about this? And so we do invite you for any kind of discussion um, uh, that we're going to have on a Sunday night as well. Um, also, let me just tell you that we, we continue to pray every uh, Sunday uh, at 10 o'clock in between the morning worship and the, uh, the, uh, the first service and the second service. And so you can join us for that uh, on the 26th, which is a Saturday. Um, we're going to be having a church-wide event where we're going to be coming together, and this is everyone. The main purpose is for the church to get together, where we're going to be making some flower boxes, putting them actually together, probably cutting some pieces, uh, some wood, putting it together, painting them, and so forth. And so uh, that's going to be on the 26th, probably starting at 11. I'll give you more details uh, midweek regarding that, but you're all encouraged to uh, to join us uh, for that as well. And I'm trying to think, I'm not sure if I have anything else. Yes, thank you. Um, so we've been, uh, God has been raising up evangelists in this church and we're super, super excited about that. We had a meeting um, on Saturday as we're trying to say, what does it look like? Uh, how do we get out there? We went out there and, and did some street preaching on the seawall last uh, Saturday. And then we're going to go out again on the Strand this Saturday, uh, starting at three o'clock. We're going to meet up here at the church and there's going to be some street preaching there. And there's just engaging people in spiritual conversations, handing out water and stuff like that. So everyone is invited to join us uh, tonight at 5 p.m. at the church. We're going to be having uh, an evangelism class uh, where we talk about how to share our faith, how to uh, introduce spiritual conversations and stuff like that. So once again, uh, everyone is invited to that. So, okay, so I'm going to ask you to stand for our benediction and then our closing song. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.